Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is Roderick Jefferson, author of Sales Enablement 3.0, the blueprint to sales enablement excellence. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Roderick Jefferson to talk about his book, Sales Enablement 3.0, The Blueprint to Sales Enablement Excellence, published by Poppy Court. Roderick Jefferson is an award-winning senior executive with 20-plus years of sales leadership and is an acknowledged practitioner and keynote speaker in the sales enablement space. He's currently an executive in residence with VentureScale and one of the founding members of the Sales Enablement Society. Prior to his current position at Netscope, he held a variety of executive leadership, sales, sales enablement, operations, and customer experience roles for various companies, including Oracle Marketing Cloud, Salesforce, PayPal, Siebel Systems, and AT&T. And interesting fact, as a child growing up, his favorite cartoon was the Jetsons. Roderick, congratulations on Sales Enablement 3.0, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, thank you so much, and thanks for the opportunity. I'm absolutely honored and looking forward to this. So another thing I learned from the intro is that you've also coached several sports teams. Is that is that right? That I have. I've been fortunate over the last 25 years to coach my son in both football and basketball, and actually started coaching well before he was even able to play. I played myself and thought, hey... I might know a little bit that could be passed on. And I started coaching. Actually, I'll be honest. My wife pushed me and nudged me to go coach because she wanted me to get out of the house. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then I yeah, I hear that a lot. fell in love with it. And <laughs> 25 years later, here I sit. Now, did your sales enablement career help with the coaching or did your coaching help with the sales enablement career or was it a little of both? I think it was kind of an ebb and flow of both. I, I learned how to deal with people and different personalities on both sides. And so I took one to the other. 
Oh, excellent. Excellent. You know, there have been about 350 books on the show uh, so far, but only two about sales enablement. <laughs> and this is number two. There, uh, there was another book, episode 205, Effective Sales Enablement by Pam Didner. And it's one of my favorite topics. And there haven't been a lot of books about it. And I can remember back a couple years ago, three years ago, or so when I before I interviewed Pam Didner about effective sales enablement, I went and took the eight-hour HubSpot sales enablement certification just to, you know, to get up to speed on that. And I thought that was really good. That something a lot of people might might really like. And I I just don't know why there aren't more books about it. Either that or you're you're ahead of the game. And another subject that's of great interest to me is sales and marketing alignment. And again, there's only there have only been two books on the show about that. One was Aligned to Achieve by Tracy Eiler and uh, Andrea Austin. And the other one was uh, our mutual friend, Jeff Davis, who was on the show. He's author of Creating Togetherness, terrific book. And his book, I, I think, was was only like about a hundred pages, and I remember him telling me he could have written a three hundred page book, but he specifically wrote it so that a like a CEO could read it on a flight. <laughs> and I noticed your book is not much longer than his, and it just seems to me like a shorter book is it's got to be twice as hard to write. Did you purposefully try to keep it a sh- on the shorter side? Initially, no. I, I thought, you know what, I've got to get everything out there. Um, <clears throat> I say this humbly as the person that actually coined the phrase in the nomenclature sales enablement. As you can imagine, there's a ton of things that I feel like the world needs to know about. I'll call it my baby sales enablement. Now, when I went to my editor, what she said was something so profound that sticks with me today. She said, I want you to write with your ego, and then we are going to work together to edit with your heart. And what she was saying was, give them everything that you think they need out of your head, and then we're going to trim it down to what really matters. And to your point, my book's only 152 pages, but it is literally a blueprint that covers the entire span of sales enablement. Mm-hmm. Well, now I noticed there's a picture of a, a good-looking uh, male model on the cover of your book. What, what What's going on there? Did they change the cover and put someone else on it? I'm kidding. I'm I a kidder. Not. Yeah, no, you got your, you know, I think uh, I see your picture on the cover there, but uh, just had to give you a hard time because I also know you're a, a Dallas Cowboys fan. So, you know. Yeah, well, I'm a glutton for punishment. Yes, yes. Like, I, and I've interviewed other authors who are Cowboys fans, and you're not going to get them to change. It's always funny to me when I read these articles about how the Cowboys are like the most loved and most hated. <laughs> <laughs> and and in recent years, I think the Patriots kind of overcame them, but now it's it's probably back to the Cowboys. So I don't know. It's just people love to make fun I'd say of them. It probably waffles between the Patriots and the Cowboys, but Cowboys have owned it for a long time. And, and yes, yes. You know, as a glutton for punishment, and I've been a Cowboys fan my entire life. You know, growing up in Texas, I always say people the same thing to people. They always talk about how long it's been since we've won a Super Bowl, and my response is always this. Other than the Patriots and the Steelers, why hasn't the rest of the league caught up with us? Oh, snap. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, I can remember I went to high school in Texas, and uh, my dad and I used to watch the Cowboys, and uh, I still think back to the days of Roger Staubach. So, hey, enough about this American football stuff, huh? All right. (laughs) Let me just read an excerpt from the forward by um, Scott McNabb. He writes, 
Since the beginning of the modern selling evolution in the 30s, we as sellers have been desperately seeking a way to hack the selling motion by trying to find a way to make it simple to buy, make the process definable, and push a buyer towards an outcome, oftentimes without regard for the buyer's personal wins, whether we were even the right solution for the problem. At no time in modern history has there been a more fundamental shift in the way buyers buy than in the last decade. The consumer is gravitating away from responding to sales approaches and methodologies that were conceived 50-plus years ago, and they are doing so at light speed. We as sales professionals can choose to pivot with the buyer and get out in front of this shift or suffer the fate of the dinosaur. This is where the art and science of sales enablement needs to be applied. And then I go over to a couple of pages later, and you write, In this book, I will share tips, best practices, personal examples, and stories that will provide you with the blueprint required to navigate the twists and turns of becoming a sales enablement practitioner. This blueprint will ultimately empower you to design, deploy, measure, and iterate the types of programs that will lead to success and respect within your field. Now, at the beginning of the book, Roderick, you talk about how you'd had a successful sales career And then I believe they wanted to promote you, and you said, no, I don't want that. And you had this expression I'd never heard of called the candy bar job. And uh, (laughs) you you said, as any good sales professional would do, I counter with my candy bar job, something I would do even if I was only paid in my favorite candy bar, which is uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, in case any of you listeners want to send him some. My candy bar job was as a regional trainer, which would give me the opportunity to share the tools, templates, and best practices that had made me successful across the region. So say more about what it is that pushed you in that direction rather than uh, going up the sales leadership chain, which seems like a more uh, common path. You know, you're right. It's generally the traditional path where most folks want to be promoted. They want to sit in the big chair of sales. For me, I realized early on that I actually loved the process of selling more than I did taking down big deals. And because, and early on, I would say, oh, because I was so organized. In all honesty, because I was so scattered at the time and I had so much going on, it was easier for me to create these basic rudimentary templates and then take those templates and share it out across our region. And to that point about the candy bar job, when I was asked, what would you want to do other than this? And my response to my leader was, well, what if I could get our sellers up to quota faster, accelerate speed to revenue, increase productivity, and get more of my peers to get to President's Club where I had been? Mm -hmm. And as any good sales leader, his answer was immediately, then you've got a new job. (laughs) And that's where the candy bar job came. And I was like, well, then here's what I would love to do, because this is what not only will feed my family, but feed my soul as well. Well, and have a actually a a greater impact on the organization you're working for. Absolutely. Spread it out wide. And what leaders, sales leaders going to say, no, I don't want to have the problem of saying we don't have budget because we have too many people that are available and eligible for club. None. (laughs) Right, right. So, uh, sales enablement. I I think it's like a lot of terms that you know that you hear in marketing and sales. It's not always well understood. And I just got to read one other thing from uh, cha- the chapter one where you write. Monty, Monty, that, that's rare. Okay, I'm going to read from chapter one. God, what is? You know, he's he, he's doing it for you. He hasn't done it for the last no, ten he wants episodes. To be part of this too. Yeah. 
<clears throat> You're right. Sales enablement is top of mind for a lot of C-level leaders these days. But the problem with sales enablement is that if you ask 10 people what it is, you will likely get 10 different answers. We're still circling around to a globally accepted definition. Some say it's defined as onboarding new employees with a focus on building a solid foundation experience that leads to long-term success. Others say that it's all about providing sales professionals with tools, templates, and processes. Some will say it's about doing whatever it takes to ensure that a company's messaging and positioning is deployed consistently to prospects and customers. None of these answers are wrong, yet none of them show the full picture. So, Roderick Jefferson, I've just got to read the chapter title for chapter one. What does sales enablement really do? Fantastic question. And I'll be back in about 45 minutes to see how you're doing. <laughs> yeah, this can take a while. Actually, I'll condense it for you. Now, if you would have asked me this question pre-COVID, I would have said it was about getting the right people in the right conversations, the right way with the right tools. Well, it's shifted. Now, with the sales enablement 3.0 strategy, I believe that sales enablement should be a part of the overall go-to-market strategy for a company and woven into the fabric of the company. Because we have an opportunity to impact as a differentiator, not just from messaging and positioning, but from a communication, a collaboration, and an orchestration perspective across the entire organization. Now, that's internally. Externally, I think we also have an opportunity to do something really special, and that is be the voice of the customer across the entire buyer's journey. Mm. For so long, we focused on we being sellers. How do we get the buyers to nudge into our sales process, our sales methodology, our selling stages? Let's just call it selling motions. Instead, enablement has an opportunity to flip that and say, where do we fit into the overall buyer's journey rather than trying to shoehorn them into our selling process? And if we do that correctly, then what we can do is actually help them to maintain the customers that they have today. We could help them mitigate risk. We could help them also increase profitability. I know it doesn't sound like something that you think about when you think traditionally training. And I'm going to say this. I believe that you train animals and you enable people. Right. Thus, that's why I get away from the training component, which is simply a component of enablement, and really talk about looking at this thing holistically from top to bottom. Right. And in the book, you were really clear that this is this is not sales training. And I'm wondering, is that a is that a common perception? People think, oh, sales enablement is sales training. It is. I get that a lot, right? And again, to that statement you made, if you ask 10 people, now I'll change that. You'll get 12 different answers, not yeah. just 10. Mm -hmm. and, and the way I explain the difference is training is a sprint. It's a one-time event with very little tail behind it for continuing education and such. Enablement is that marathon. Now, enablement starts all the way back with talent acquisition and assessment. If you are in enablement or if you're a sales leader or a marketing leader, make sure that your enablement team is a part of the interview cycle when folks are coming on that are going to be customer facing. Because while marketing does a fantastic job of creating and crafting the ICP or ideal customer or client profile, I'm going to give another acronym just because we don't have enough out there. Mm -hmm. How about this? IEP. What's the ideal employee profile for the sellers that will then be able to speak to that ICP? Now, that's why I say enablement should be a part of the interview cycle from talent assessment and acquisition. Then the next step of enablement is onboarding. And this will all 
adjust depending upon where a company is in the maturation cycle, but these are components that must be in all of your enablement plant. So the next is onboarding. And that's making sure that you've got role-specific components because what's too deep or technical for one is not enough for another. The next now you're is, talking about onboarding salespeople. On, onboarding sales folks, absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the next, well, not just sales. I, I look at this more as field enablement now. I'm talking about BDRs, sales folks, sales engineers, um, all the way out to customer success and customer experience, because I want to pull this together holistically for enablement, not just focus on one role, but how do we touch the and impact the entire buyer's journey to become the voice of the customer? Right. So the next is role-specific guided learning paths. Again, what's too technical for one may not be enough for another. So let's get these specific to what they need to be successful. The next step is all about leadership coaching and reinforcement because we can give you marketing, we can give you sales, the best world-class program on the planet. If you don't own the adoption, the execution, and the positive modeling of it, it dies on the vine. The next piece is all about revenue-focused metrics. Mm -hmm. Let me say this to the sales enablement folks that are listening. Please stop saying that we drive revenue unless you carry a bag. We do not. We influence and we impact revenue by working and partnering with the lines of business across your company. The final piece is succession planning. What are we doing to create more leaders, not just managers? If you don't have a high potential or a hypo program in place, you're missing out on something. And don't assume, as my leader did early in my career, that just because these people are successful sales folks, that they want to be leadership in the sales organization. They may want to go into marketing or product marketing or product management or enablement. Let's make sure that we've got those succession plans that are tight enough that can get them to that space, but broad enough to where they get a chance to decide what their career looks like. And we can always pivot and shift them off to that direction. Well, that was a great overview of the book. <laughs> Let's step back for just, I don't I want to add, I want to unpack several of those things as the kids Absolutely. say. But first, um, let's say you're maybe run into one of the other parents when you're coaching or, or you meet somebody at a party and they're not uh, really familiar with uh, sales and they find out that you've written a book and it's about sales enablement. What, how do you explain that to a civilian? Actually, when I explain it, I don't even talk about sales enablement. I don't even say the words sales enablement, which are hard again for the guy that created this space. What I talk about is- That's a is good a idea, book. actually. Yeah, I, it is I, a book about- how people communicate, how they collaborate, and how they orchestrate so that we can make things better for our customers at Ah. the end of the day. And I explained that when I do say sales enablement, I go, I'm not going to get into the deep explanation. It's really simple. We're in the people business. Mm -hmm. Our job is to make our people bigger, faster, stronger, and more well-prepared to go out and ask the right questions, not just get the right answers. Right. Boy, the word customer centricity comes to mind. That's a great explanation, though. Thank and, you, you know, you say you don't say sales enablement. I think that's a great idea because there are so many buzzwords uh, and, and there's a lot of jargon out there, certainly in the marketing world. Oh, my goodness. And I'm uh, always cautioning listeners, you know, be careful around civilians saying these words. Like, for instance, don't go say words like storytelling or branding. <laughs> I've got a couple hundred <laughs> authors that have said that have that affirmed that. You know, they're saying, you know, be, be careful. Talk about what they're what your what your business is is trying uh, to accomplish? Yeah. Let me ask. Before some- we move off of this one, Douglas, mm-hmm. I, I want to make a point to the marketers, especially. 
I am modeling what I want our ma- our marketing team as well as our sellers to do. And that is don't talk about products, don't talk about solutions, and don't talk about platforms. If you're going to sell anything, sell the experience that a prospect can only get by partnering with your company. Mm-hmm. So take that to the explanation of the book now. I don't talk about the product. I don't talk about any of the solutions in it. I talk about the experience that is the end result that you'll get from reading this book. Mm. That is great. And, you know, there's so many companies uh, out there, marketers and salespeople, are just talking about their products. And it's really the probably the worst thing they could be doing, instead focusing on the, on the customer. And actually, there's a... Um, there's a great quote on page 14 where you say, the number one question that every sales enablement professional should ask when approaching a new company initiative or program is, what business problem are we trying to solve? Talk about the importance of uh, that. And I guess also as it relates to your your customer. Well, at the end of the day, if we don't have customers, we don't have business, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a given statement. So, I go back to what I was just saying. If we focus on what's important to them, then this becomes a conversation instead of a presentation. Mm -hmm. No one wants to be sold to. It's the reason we don't have Blockbuster anymore. It's the reason that we all hate stepping on a car lot, right? Because we know what's about to happen. We're going to be sold to. Mm -hmm. So instead, what if we step back and looked at it from two angles? We ask all the questions that will help to understand what their pain is. Then we come back with a diagnosis of that pain. Sometimes it's aspirin. Sometimes it's Vicodin. Sometimes it may be an extraction or an amputation. But if we're only asking questions that's going to move the sales forward, you'll never actually get to the root cause of what the pain is. You'll just be treating the symptoms. And there's one critical piece that I've noticed over the years in enablement that continually gets left out. And that's this question. So Mr. Mrs. Customer, What will this mean to you personally by partnering with my company? Will it get you a bigger seat at the table? Will it get you a promotion? Will it get you out of the doghouse? Will it put your name up in lights? Without that component, we're still looking at the symptoms and not actually hitting the root cause of Mm -hmm. that pain. Yeah, you're right that it's time to stop giving presentations and start having <laughs> conversations. And uh, again, you also, there's another one that you talk about. It's, it's time to focus on business outcome uh, conversations. But I tell you what, the one, the one line of all that I could carve in stone would be where you write, it's now more important than ever to get closer to prospects and to understand their needs, goals, and deliverables. And you also talk about sales enablement practitioners need to discontinue the traditional approach of focusing solely on ROI, which I guess you're still seeing a lot of. And you say instead that we now need to include the cost of inaction uh, in, in sales more. Absolutely. And before I move forward, I want to give um, props and a big shout out to Scott McNabb, because this is something that he has ingrained in me over the decades that we've known each other. Look, ROI is great, and it is a a much-needed metrics, and it's required. But without that COI or cost of inaction, what happens if you don't move forward? Do you fall behind in um, market space? Do you fall behind competitively? Do you fall behind in regards to innovation? Mm -hmm. So let's look at both of these pieces 
and then put them together and figure out how we can find a mutually equitable way between my company and your company to address those que- the answers to those questions. And that's where COI comes in. ROI, we all know is a given. But minus COI, you're only talking about half the equation. And you also, however, caution folks, don't try and scare people. <laughs> well, I, I can see how someone who's not as <clears throat> talented or skillful as a salesperson would use that, and they're trying to scare somebody. And that just seems like it's going to generate reactants and get somebody to shut down. So, But you do need to bring it up. Do you find that a lot of salespeople just skip over it altogether, the cost of inaction? I think that they're not. a lot of salespeople aren't aware of how to combine ROI and COI. Mm-hmm. So what they do instead is, to the point I say in the book, do not use this as a scare tactic, especially at the end of the month or the end of the quarter, <laughs> right? For obvious reasons. <clears throat> That's not yeah. what this is about. This is not about trying to manufacture a compelling event. This is really trying to understand and show them what can potentially happen by not working with you and only with your company. And it also is more about showing the value that your company brings in key differentiation, competitive advantage, and business value. Now, sales folks are very good at those first two. It's the last one, business value, Mm -hmm. that I define this way. And that is, so Mr. and Mrs. Customer, what this means to you is, by going with us, we can help you do one of two things. Either help you increase productivity and efficiency, or decrease pain. Which of those would you like to focus on? Think about how just framing that changes an entire conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm really trying to be that old word of, of, and overused words of trusted advisor. But it's really more about partnering right now, especially in our COVID environment. Times like this, we've never had such a personal selling environment in our lives. We're inviting each other into our homes. We're not going out for cocktails. We're not playing golf. We're not out running around together. We are literally inviting each other into the homes. So what it does is takes you as a seller to show a different and a higher level of empathy, humanity, and compassion to where you're literally trying to help rather than trying to sell. Yes. And with a nod to the marketers listening, there is uh, something on page 30 I want to ask you about. It has to do with content. And you write that uh, companies will need to design, build, and use content designed to renew and advance conversations with prospects on a level never before thought of. What what are examples of some of the content that is being used effectively for sales enablement that maybe wasn't being used uh, as recently as five or 10 years ago? Well, I, I don't know that it hasn't been used. I just think it's being used in a different way, and it has a high, much higher level of value. So to my marketing folks, we're talking about our messaging and positioning, i.e., let's call it our first call pitch deck that that marketing helps to build, right? Let's always remember that there should be three components to this for when you're giving it out to sales folks to go talk. And those three components are this. What do we want the prospect or customer to think? What do we want them to feel? And then the call to action, what do we want them to do? So if we build it in that way, it now is much easier to take it from marketing speak and translate it into sales speak, which is what we do in enablement, and then send it out. They bring it back in to us. We come back and then retranslate it back into marketing speak. There should always be a two-way conversion piece here between those. Mm -hmm. The other things are things like working with competitive intelligence, right? Generally, there's a competitive intel group. 
But it's important that marketing clearly understands what are the significant changes, not just today, but what are the trends that are being seen out in the marketplace so that now we can speak to not only the current environment, but we can speak to the sales folks in words that will get them prepared going forward and will also drive a level of trust to where the salespeople bring information back from out in the field, back to marketing and say, hey, you know what? Absolutely love the first call pitch. But slide seven gets a little fuzzy. Mm -hmm. Can we either smooth that out or take it out because it creates confusion? And that's the kind of information we want to be able to bring back to marketing because you need to know how your information is being played out in the field. The final thing I'll say is this. When it comes to content, especially here internally, we use a content management system called Showpad. And on a monthly basis, what my team does is actually pulls a report with the top 25 and the bottom 25 assets as they're ranked by sales. And we go back and we sit down with product marketing and with competitive intel and other groups internally. And we say, here are the top ones. Let's not touch those. Those are working. Mm -hmm. These bottom 25, what if we sit back and collectively and collaboratively create a sunset process so that we don't have all this old content out there confusing our sales folks or information that they're not using? And it also shows them that not only did we hear them, but we're listening to them and we're taking our cues to partner with them. Yeah, but Roderick, this requires sales and marketing alignment, and we won't have any of that. No, I'm kidding. Oh, now no. we're just talking crazy. <laughs> I know. But you know, it's funny. In your book, you talk about retiring content, and I I don't know that I've seen that. in Maybe I missed it. In a lot of the content marketing books, it's, the focus is more about how to create content that's more effective for your sales team and for your, more importantly, for your buyers. But you don't hear about a methodology for just getting rid of it, retiring it. And that's a, a, a great approach. There's one thing I want to ask you about, though, as, as it relates to building a sales enablement blueprint. You wrote that you found that most sales enablement teams have been created based upon a sense of overwhelming need. What what do you mean by that? And I, it I, I get the sense you're describing a bad thing. It's generally a very, very good thing that becomes so overwhelming that it turns into a bad thing that needs to be addressed immediately. And what happens is, and I, I've been a team of one several times in my career. And so what it means is, generally speaking, as we're growing up and going through the maturation cycle of companies, your first real sales enablement practitioner or leader is generally your sales leader right? Because they're the closest to the content. They're working with marketing, but they're doing the quote unquote training. And then it gets to a point to where the leader says, I'm no longer able to focus on closing deals because I'm spending so much time trying to groom the new folks and get them up to speed and prepared and up to quota. Mm -hmm. That's where the bad part comes in, right? We're stuck. We've got to do something. Now here's the answer and the antidote to that. That's when it's time to bring in a sales enablement practitioner that truly owns the tools, the processes, the programs of sales enablement, and then works as the hub with all of the other organizations internally. Mm -hmm. When a sales enablement practitioner is brought in, I guess, for the first time, like you're describing, does that actually boost the sales and marketing alignment better than it had been in the past? Oh, absolutely. Because what happens now is, and I'll give it to you in, in an analogy, what you have now is an orchestra master, mm -hmm. right? Think about an orchestra. You've got woodwinds, percussion, strings, um, et cetera, and brass. 
no, et cetera, and brass. <laughs> and so what they're doing is they're all trying to play the right song. Sometimes they're out of phase, they're out of tune, and they're playing on top of each other. Well, the same thing happens internally with marketing, product marketing, HR, engineering, and sales. And now you've got enablement who, just like the conductor of an orchestra, steps up, taps the stand, and now all of that chaos and noise becomes a beautiful sheet of music. Mm-hmm. That's where we become the connectors between sales and marketing. For my, me personally, in my organizations, I don't hire anyone on my team that has not carried a bag in some sort. Mm-hmm. Either sales, you are a customer success manager, you are an SE, but you have to have been able to say, I've walked in those shoes. Here's why. Because I want my team out listening on calls and finding out how the information that marketing has created is actually being received in the real world. Mm-hmm. And then take that feedback, as I said earlier, translate it back into marketing speak and let them know what they can do to make this more effective and efficient content mm-hmm. so that it's going to be used. And the sales folks are, are now loving that content because this is exactly what the customer asked for. Oh, I love it. You're, you're describing a, a, a beautiful thing. Uh, <laughs> but let me. It's also utopia and yeah. really happy. Yeah, but you know, I'm, I'm realistic about but it. Maybe that's why I'm so fascinated. But because you know, as a more of a marketing person, my interest is in you know the buyer and the seller and how that can be tied. And you know, the I always why, let me let me back up. Why is a book about this on the Marketing Book Podcast? And it's because I've I've had maybe more than fifty books about sales on the show because I feel very strongly that the best marketers are the ones that have the deepest insights into selling the sales process, but, and even more importantly, the, the buying process and the, uh, and, and, and the buyer. So let's say somebody is listening to this and maybe they've heard about sales enablement. They're a marketer, maybe they're a sales, uh, a leader or something like that. And they say, you know what, uh, Roderick and Douglas are talking about. We, we, we really need to go in that, in that direction. What are the barriers to building the business case for sales enablement that you tend to see? You know, I can just imagine folks sitting there in a conference room with their arms crossed thinking, I don't know, this sounds like another, you know, gimmick. What, <laughs> talk about that. How, what is it that helps get people past that hesitation and starts to get them sort of tasting the wine? Well, I think it starts with the explanation as we started the show of what's the value and what does sales enablement really do? Mm-hmm. And, but there's another component. It's also what does sales enablement not do? Because we are not the fixers, broken things. We're not the answer to every question. So whenever, and I consulted for three years around sales enablement, I started every conversation this way. What's your definition of sales enablement and why are you asking to bring it in? Hmm. That is the immediate first step of understanding and getting a um, calibrated baseline of what enablement is, what will happen, what are the deliverables, what's not included in this, and then ultimately, what's the outcomes and what are the metrics that we're going to tie to this? And that's the other thing. The problem with, with sales enablement for the longest is, and we did this to ourselves as practitioners, and I was a part of it as well and have thankfully stepped out of that. Our metrics were all vanity. They were what I call smiley sheets and butts and seats. I love it. I'm stealing it. <laughs> we got all fives. We trained 7,000 people. Great. That and seven bucks will get you a latte. Uh-huh. And what I got back from a sales leader is I talk about in one of the stories in the book, I'm giving out all of these vanity stats and he stops and he looks at me and he says, 
Nothing that you just said is going to help my people close more deals. Yeah. And that day I changed my entire concept of asking the question, what would the metrics be that we could impact for sales, for SEs, for customer experience, and for channels and alliances that would impact revenue and create customers for life as opposed to simply making sales enablement look good? Right. And you talk about three things that have been very helpful when you've been trying to build the case. And you just mentioned two of them. You talk, this is on page 46, you talk about accelerating speed to revenue, increasing individual seller productivity, and creating customers to life. It seems like if you start with those three things, the civilians, I'm, I'm, I'm meaning people outside the marketing department, are are going to pay attention, and they're going to be that's going to be of interest to them. And you that that story was a great one you mentioned, and you said that. Uh, let me just quote from it. You you talked about you know what was it a smiley, smiley sheets and butts and seats, smiley sheets and butts and seats, and you were talking about how you were gonna all the things you all were doing and how you, you know I mean sound, you uh, trying to do the best you possibly could, and he he says. Uh, he looked you squarely in the eye and said, none of this information will help the sales professionals close more business. You're right. I was completely devastated. He then said something that I will never forget. If you want to be successful, ask yourself what's important to a sales leader instead of wasting time and energy and resources on what you assume will make you and your team look valuable. So let's talk about measurement. You you started to touch on that, and there's an entire chapter, chapter 12, all about uh, measurement. Following up on that conversation you had, that that learning experience with that sales leader, what are the kinds of things that really ring the bell with the the sales leaders and the and the management that a sales enablement person should be talking about? Well, to that point, I think there are two different types and sets of metrics. One that we impact and influence, and those are things like. Uh, accreditation and certification completion, average deal size, collateral use and frequency, deal velocity, um, pipeline generation, number of closed deals, product mix by segment if you have multiple products, quota percentage attainment quarter over quarter, quota attainment annually, time to revenue, and then win rate and loss rate percentages. Mm -hmm. We impact those. The things we own are things like certification and accreditation passing marks, um, biannual needs analysis, our program-based surveys, our usage stats around the learning management system, content management system, and assets, et cetera, communications deployed, and then all of the other statistics that come around e-learning and the programs and processes and being able to validate that back to generating revenue. That's terrific. And I think that if a marketing person were to go and try and find out that information, particularly if it's not already given to them, that would impress people. <laughs> it would surprise people that you're you're asking those kinds of, of questions. You mentioned well, earlier- well, there, There's one other one before I leave this, and, and, and this is one where we hang our hat with marketing, and that is, you know, pipeline gin. And, and that's a big one, but, and I talk about this in the book, and I'll be brief on this one, Douglas. There's all the the-, the ongoing feud, if you will, between sales and marketing, I think is much easier to solve for than we've ever done. And that is marketing says, we've given you all of these leads. You don't do anything with them. Sales says it's because the leads suck and there's nothing we can do with them. Now, how many times has sales and marketing 
with a moderator, i.e. sales enablement, sat down at the same table and said, sales, you say that these aren't solid leads. Have you ever actually defined what a marketing or a sales qualified lead looks like or what it doesn't look like? Mm-hmm. The answer is generally no, that this has not happened. Mm-hmm. On the other side, marketing. When you go out and get these, if you had a clear definition, do you think that you could get more valuable in the minds of sales leads to them? The answer is generally yes. So my next question is, say, why has this not been done? And then secondly, sales. Why don't we start with you? Why don't you define in your speak, sales speak, what a marketing and a sales qualified lead looks like so that marketing now has a clear definition. And when they're passing it over, they're passing over exactly what you're asking for. They're not giving you what they think you need. And then at that point, I say marketing. At that point, the onus is on sales. They can no longer say that they're not adopting and adapting to those leads because you gave them what they asked for. Mm-hmm. And this also points to a very interesting thing in your book where you talk about over your career, you've discovered that KPIs are generally not the root of the problem as it relates to sales and marketing alignment. And it seems like one of the biggest stumbling blocks is determining what is a sales qualified lead? Who, who is our ideal customer? I run into that a lot where companies are, it's like they want to say anything with a pulse. And it's like, oh man, you're really making it difficult for yourself. You, you, <laughs> you laugh at that, but I've worked in companies where I asked, who, and I asked sales, what's our ICP? And the answer was anyone that'll buy. And I said, well, therein lies the first problem. Yeah, yeah. And I go back and I ask marketing, who's our ICP? And they will break it down for me by demographics, by psychographics, by vertical. And I say, okay, stop. Just hold that thought. I'm going to set up a meeting between you and sales. And I want them to hear what our actual ICP is. And I want you to hear what sales leaders are telling our sellers the ICP is to see how far off we really are. And then let's close that silo between the two so that we're both speaking the same language. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Maybe it's easier as an outsider to come in and, and see these things than um, uh, being in there. But, um, you know, towards the end of the book, you talk about uh, a, a culture of learning. And you write, building a culture of learning seems to be on all of the sales enablement bingo cards these days. But what does it really mean? Talk about that. I mean, I... A lot of people listening to this show are very interested in, in, in continuous learning. But what what does it mean to you when you talk about a, a culture of learning, particularly as it relates to sales enablement? Well, it means a couple of things. One, it means that we actually have a strategy that expands the life cycle from onboarding all the way through the entirety of one's career. It also means that it is a coordinated effort between the lines of business to ensure that this happens. So let me be a little more granular. I talked about it earlier, and I'll I'll fly through these again. It means thinking about what our IEP or ideal employee profile is and agreeing on that, right? Mm -hmm. Because as your company matures, you'll need a different type of seller, as we all know. You can start with that volume velocity sell. Then when you get to a more complex sell, and then when you get to that big ticket long-term sell, three different types of sellers. So if that's the case, That means now marketing has to create a different level of content for each of those sellers. It also means that enablement has to enable at a different level of depth for the seasoned grizzly seller versus the fresh out of college BDR that is walking to their first corporate experience. 
It also means that you have a common theme generally throughout the year. So we started sales kickoff this year with a theme. That theme will carry the entire year and sales kickoff should be the floor, not the ceiling of enablement. It should be what sets the entire goals. And then we should have an enablement strategy that reinforces everything, new messaging, new positioning, new go-to-market, different shifts in competitive landscape, all those things that happen. We have to make sure that there's a process, a a program, and tools that align to all of those. And Mm -hmm. each of those then fall into the new hire onboarding program. Then they fall into the continuing education where we're sharpening that sword so we're not sending our sellers kind of out to war proverbially with a plastic spoon. Then we also have to hit the leadership team with coaching and reinforcement so that they can own the adoption, the execution, and the positive modeling. And then ultimately, we have to make sure that we are helping the organization to create more leaders and not just managers. Quick example. For years, we have taken the rock star salesperson. What do we do? We promote them to sales manager. These people have never managed anything but their own patch. They don't know how to hold a meeting. They've never had to hire or fire. None of that. Now we've created two problems. One, we've taken a rock star out of a a patch and left it vulnerable to competition. Mm -hmm. But two, we've created what everyone on the planet, two words that we all hate, because I've never heard this be used positively, micromanagers. (laughs) So as we move along that cycle of that, that culture of learning, each of those pieces have to be in place at the right time and role specific at the right level. Does that Mm. answer your question? Yes. And it brings to mind that, you know, the sales kickoff really should be considered more the starting gun rather than the finish line. Absolutely. uh, Where they think, okay, now, now go sprinkle that magic pixie dust and start making sales. Last thing I know we got, we're short on time. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was probably my favorite chapter. I don't mean to be unfair to the other chapters, but chapter six, aligning sales enablement to your buyer's journey. And a great section on the buyer's journey. You break it down. Great for marketers. Great for sales folks. And you write, a common problem I see time and again is that companies are unable to establish alignment between the buyer's journey (laughs) and their selling motions. What are some of the things that – my sense is that you've probably worked with companies that have not even thought about what the buyer wants versus the way they want to sell. What are some of the things you do to start – to get an organization to think more about their buyers? Well, it it starts with a a simple one slide. And I say, let's map out the buyer's journey up top. Below that, let's tie in the sales methodology. Coming down a level, let's put in our sales process and our sales stages and selling motions. Below that, let's add in all the marketing assets that fit into each one of those segments or sell stages. And then at the baseline of that, let's put all of the enablement activities, right? Sounds easy enough. The reason I do it- Sounds like a layer cake. It it does, and it's actually what it is. And the reason I do it this way is I want both sales and marketing to visibly be able to see where the gaping holes are. Yeah. And those holes are generally up top. Most companies have not actually mapped out in a single location what their buyer's journey looked like. They've tried to shoehorn, as I said earlier, all those other components that I just outlined yeah. into how we want the buyers to buy. We don't <laughs> how, get to do how does that, that work out? <laughs> yeah, not too well. Yeah, yeah. That's great. So when, when they're talking about the buyer's journey, are they sometimes surprised at how little they understand? Or uh, there's a lot of guessing going on there if they haven't really uh, taken steps to, to better understand their uh, their buyers, particularly before they reach out to the seller? 
Generally, they don't. And and this is where I get an opportunity to create a compelling event and kind of you know nudge a little bit and create some pain. So I'll take, for example, here's, here's just kind of a generic selling process, right? Mm-hmm. Identify, then assess, then prioritize, then evaluate, and then implement. So I'll go back to them and I'll say, all right, in our very first stage of prospect or lead, do we know what the concern is? Have we now identified the consequence or the problem? Is there a compelling event? And is there a need for change? Mm-hmm. Then you've got to have gates in that va- validate each of those that then align back to how the buyer is buying. Because I'm talking about the buyer now, not the seller. Mm-hmm. So then the next days I'll go, okay, great. It's validate for us. Well, for the buyer, it may be something like assess. They need to know, is it feasible to address my concerns? Do we have goal evaluations? Do they have a long and a, and a short-term list? And then what are the actions that are needed, right? And then the next, qualify, just for, for nomenclature. Tying back to the buyer's journey, I'd say something like prioritize. What will we be addressing this concern do for the actual buyer? What's the action impact? What's the budget allocated or is there a budget allocated? And what specific resources will be needed? Then I'll Mm -hmm. say, all right, great. Now we're at the negotiations phase for our sellers. That's essentially the evaluation phase for a buyer. They need to know who can help me. Um, How's it aligned to their company goals, both internal and external resources that'll be needed. What's the scoping process look like? What's the selection process? And then the final piece of the closed sale. Well, for them, it's implementation. It's what will it take to implement this? What's the implementation look like, plan look like, excuse me, so that I have a roadmap from you and I don't feel like I'm a guinea pig on my dime. (laughs) Next is what's the business impact results? And then finally, are there any additional insights or key learnings? Now, when I start having that conversation with sales and marketing, most of the time, we can't answer that. And that's because we only know the pieces that are down below. Yes. Well, it all starts up top or none of that stuff down low actually ever happens. Yeah. Once again, it's now more important than ever to get closer to prospects and to understand their needs, goals, and deliverables. So, Roderick, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Well, I'd like them to understand that sales enablement is no longer viewed as simply training or the fixers of broken things in people but as partners across all of the lines of business that act, as I said earlier, the orchestra conductor, mm. right? At its core, sales enablement is an innovative approach focused on increasing sales productivity through a systematic, personalized, and collaborative across all lines of business approach designed to support buyers that will fuel what I'm calling the conversation economy. Mm, well said. And I, it just seems like a, I think it's a, one of my favorite topics because it can have such dramatic impact for companies. So looking back, what books have most inspired your working career, Roderick? I've got a number of them. I'll start with Beat the Bots by Anita Nielsen. There's The Transparency Sale by Todd Capone. A book called Building a Story Brand, especially for the manager, excuse me, for the marketers by Donald Miller. Mm. If you have not read that, then you may have to give back your marketing card because that is an amazing book. Agreed. Another one is called I Want to Be in Sales When I Grow Up by John Barros. And then finally, Creating Togetherness by our friend Jeff Davis. Oh, excellent. And I've, boy, I'm honored to have been able to interview two of them. I haven't interviewed Donald Miller, but that is a terrific. A terrific book. Great recommendations. Are there any other recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Yeah, I've got a number of those. So Onboarding Matters, which is 
about the onboarding process for customer success. Oh, I've heard by, about that. Yeah. By Donna Weber. Uh-huh. Um, Donna and I have been friends and worked together for 20 years ago at, at Siebel. She has an amazing story. And it's actually, and I'm reading it now, it is the absolute compliment to my book on the customer success side. Another one is called Geo's Gems by Giovanni DeRice. Next, I'd say Reclaim Your Visibility by Dr. Carl Stokes. Lose the Weight, which is W-E-I-G-H-T, and Feel Great by Stacey Scott. Another book is Hey Little Girl by my friend Vania Swain. I'd say The Cage is Her Cocoon by Constantine Aline. That's A-L-L-Y-N-E. And finally, Doing It Differently by Patrice, and that's P-A-T-R-Y-C-E Shepard. Oh, terrific. Boy, we're going to have some great uh, show notes uh, for this episode. I look forward to uh, finding out about those. I, I, there was only one that I've heard of, and I, um, I'm going to dig into the others here. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, your website, uh, how do people can reach you on uh, LinkedIn or Twitter, and all the, you know, like I said, all the books you mentioned. And to the listener, please uh, I, I need you all to, I'm going to use a football term, I want a swarming offense. I want everyone to reach out to Roderick and thank him for being a guest in the Marketing Book Podcast. This is a terrific book, and there's a million podcasts, and he's decided to spend his valuable time with us. Uh, and the guests on the Marketing Book Podcast absolutely love it when listeners reach out to them and ask questions or or you know thank him for being on. And if you're listening on your smartphone, you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app. All these links can be found right now by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The book is Sales Enablement 3.0, The Blueprint to Sales Enablement Excellence. The author is Roderick Jefferson. Roderick, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.